Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matthew Watson. I serve as the uh, pastor here at Christ City Church. Really excited that you guys are here. Today, we actually start a, a two-week series. It's a short series um, that we have done the entire life of our church uh, at, during the summer. It's a series that we call My Most Important Question. And um, what it is, is where members from the Christ City Church family, uh, where they stand in the midst of the community and they uh, share stories of their own faith and some of their most uh, shaping and pressing questions. Um, and these the things that they share, they're often very raw, they're tender, they're courageous, they're challenging, they're frightening, they're inspiring, but they are always faithful. And so um, this morning, um, uh, we have three of our folks that will be sharing and one of the reasons for the, or the, the impetus for this series is because we believe that our faith in Christ and our church is strong enough and resilient enough even for hard questions. And so we don't shrink back from them. So let me pray for them as they come. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for the ways that you've already stirred us, Lord, even as we've sung about your greatness and your goodness as we have prayed prayers um, ancient and ancient ones that we've prayed in a more modern way, but God, we have offered up ourselves and our voices to you. Um, and Lord, however it is that we've arrived in this place, maybe we've even arrived here with questions ourselves, uh, but Lord, we, we know that you, um, that you hear us, that you hear our prayers, that you hear the prayers that we pray with our, with our mouths and with our minds and, and prayers that come out of our gut even, Lord. And so God, as um, these um, sisters and brother come and as they share um, questions that they've had about what it means to follow you. And um, God, I pray that we, would, that we would hear their stories and that we would hear your story in theirs and that we would hear our own story as well. And Spirit, I pray that we would listen well to you. Pray over our friends as they come. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. My name is Ajahn Lee, and my most important question is one that has been asked before, and I thought it was appropriate uh, that I ask it back to the original inquirer, which is, who do you say I am? Uh, Jesus asks this question to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, to which many names uh, come up, and, and then Simon, Simon Peter, one of his disciples, responds with, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So names are important. Uh, parents often take a lot of time to choose a name or names for their children. And we um, also see the significance of names in the Bible, uh, their meanings often encapsulating the character's role or fate in the story. Um, so it is one of the most often referenced part of our identities. I moved around a lot when I was young. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and then moved to the Canary Islands at the age of five. Uh, five. And then w before we moved to California when I was seven, um, my mom sat me down one day and asked if I wanted to have an English name. And before I could respond, she mentioned the famous Korean violinist, viol violinist Chung Kyung-hwa and told me, if you live a life worthy of remembrance, people will call you by your name, no matter how difficult the pronunciation. It's a really deep thought for a seven-year-old. You know, like, what, what do you say to that? Like, Mom, I still want to be called Jenny. You know, like, <laughs> and so I, I, I stuck with, I kept the name Ajahn. And, uh, but I have to say that since then, at the age of seven, um, since moving to the States, I've, uh, I have to say I've regretted that decision many times, you know. Every start of the school year, um, every new substitute teacher, 
then every new job, new church, every Starbucks order, you know, it's, it just kind of goes on and on. And uh, there were many times I wished that I had an English name um, so that I could fit in. One such example happened when I, was, uh, when I first started working at International Justice Mission a little over four years ago. Uh, when one of the senior leaders initially had trouble pronouncing my name. And so instead of asking other people um, or eventually not referring to me by my name, which happens sometimes, he would come by my desk a couple times um, for like the first few weeks and practice saying my name. Like, remind me your name again? Oh, Eugen, Eugen, Augen. You know, it just kind of became this uh, thing between us. And it got to a point where I was uh, getting embarrassed on his behalf, you know, and just thinking, man, like, <laughs> I knew he was going to have a meeting with my boss and was going to come in, like, why didn't I go to the restroom, you know? It was just, like, this thing that um, became kind of embarrassing and awkward and, again, very annoyed that my name wasn't Jenny Lee. <laughs> um, but eventually he, he got it um, about a month later <laughs> and remembered how to say it correctly. Um, and he said it correctly again when I saw him again, you know, years later at a conference. And so this Korean name with a very unique English spelling um, that was at many points in my life a, a burden, a source of awkwardness or embarrassment, um, became a source of connection between a young immigrant woman from the West Coast and an elderly white gentleman from Michigan. And so <coughs> this is just an illustration, illustration that my name has been this constant reminder of my foreign identity um, in the US. And so when people hear my name for the first time, one of the most frequent questions I get is, where is it from? And I've been in this country for almost 25 years now and know its language, its history, its culture better than those of Korea's. Um, and yet when people hear the most referenced part of my identity, their question is often about its foreign nature, right? The, the otherness. At this point, I want to uh, say a, a side note that uh, it's okay <laughs> to do that. Like, I'm not offended when people ask about that. I often do that, and I often ask, you know, how to pronounce a name that I'm not familiar with correctly. So, um, just a little sidebar. Um, uh, but in this way, my name has also been the most prominent dash of my hyphenated Korean-American identity. Um, and the question of my name's origin is really the most surface-level inquiry into a slew of questions that if we were to have a ser sermon series, it would require a year-long series, right, titled Ajahn's Most Important Questions. So like <laughs> some examples being, you know, the longer I live in the States, doesn't mean I'm more American, less Korean. How do I fully embody my identity as female, Korean, Asian American, Christian, um, while cross-culturally navigating through predominantly white male worlds and spaces? Um, what does it mean to honor one's parents, right? That's definitely, like, that's so bound in cultural context. What does biblical filial piety mean um, when it can mean very different things depending on the culture? Um, what church community do I join? I grew up in a Korean-American church, so do I go back to a Korean-American church or do I continue to s serve and be a part of a more multi-ethnic church, oftentimes a predominantly white church? Um, what does it mean to be a, a person of color and a follower of Jesus in the US? And in the midst of all this, Jesus, who do you say I am? 
And so my grappling with ethnic and gender and cultural identities over the past 15 plus years have often intersected and intertwined with my spiritual identity. I am as much Korean and female as I am Christian, and I frequently wonder what does it mean to be some combination or all of the three. And in this way, my story thus far of what it means to be a Korean, American, right, female has also helped me to better understand the kingdom of God. Um, I navigate in and engage with different cultural spaces with varying degrees of ease. Um, but never feel fully belonged anywhere, right? So I'm constantly, feels like I'm constantly on a journey, but never at the destination. Here, but not yet. So even as I work through questions of identity, there is one part um, that has already been answered, and, is perma- and it is permanent. Uh, my name, Ajin, means blessed servant of God. And no matter how Korean, American, or female or not, I feel on a, any given day, the meaning of my name doesn't change. And I think in, in some ways the question of who do you say I am uh, similarly has multiple parts, but the most important question, the most important part is one that has already been communicated to me and in some ways overshared to the point of being trite, which is that I am his beloved daughter um, and that nothing, no culture, no background, Societal perceptions can change that. So the conclusion I've come to is that I simultaneously know the answer and I don't. Um, Just as my understanding of my different identities will evolve through different encounters and experiences, I think my understanding of who God says I am may look different 10, 20, 50 years from now. Um, And I'm grateful to have this community um, with me as I explore what it means to be Ajin Lee, a blessed servant and a child of God in this season. Thank you. Hi. Um, Hi. My most important question is, God, can I really trust that you can transform me? My mom is adored by everyone who knows her. She is kind, warm, patient, and loving. Through her actions, she displays a commitment to serve others, give generously, and sacrifice for her family. Throughout my childhood, she and I were extremely close, and there wasn't anyone I trusted more. I was a sensitive but pretty carefree kid who was active, played competitive soccer, and loved making other people laugh. So when my mom's seemingly out-of-the-blue attention to my appearance and weight emerged right as I was entering adolescence, I was completely blindsided. At first, it was primarily comments about the clothes I wore, food I ate. I was 14 years old and weighing just about 135 pounds when my mom put me in the car and told me I would be starting a weekly Weight Watchers program. I would need to catalog everything I ate, and my weight would be taken and and recorded each week. Um, I was humiliated. I remember going to my mom in her bedroom later that day, crying and begging her not to make me go again, and apologizing for not being better. I promised I would try to lose weight on my own. My pleading with her was to no avail, and it would be a full year of constant appeals before I was finally allowed to stop. Throughout this time, I remember wondering, I remember feeling so foolish that I had previously thought that I was okay. I began wondering, what is everyone else really thinking? Does everyone see what my mom sees, and, I'm, and she's just the only one willing to say something? 
Maybe there is something fundamentally wrong with me. My prayer at this time was mostly one of asking God to transform my situation. I hoped he would change my mom's behavior and end the nearly daily interventions that occurred throughout my, child, throughout my adolescence. Sometimes these look more, like, more subtle, like scales that would appear in my bedroom or bathroom or comments in front of a crowd encouraging me to eat salad or carrots in front, instead of what my older sister or younger brother were being served. One particular event stands out occurred a few months before my older sister's wedding. My mom was seeing a weight loss doctor herself where she received regular injections to suppress her appetite. I was 20 years old, at home on a break from college, and no now was in a healthy weight range. However, my mom sat me down and shared that I would be required to see the weight loss doctor and receive the same injections. I remember just losing it. I began to sob and refused to go. My mom said it was not up for discussion. She was just trying to help me and knew I would thank her later. My mom let me know if I refused to go, the car she had, she had helped me purchase after I graduated from, college, from high school would be taken away. My anger intensified. I was angry at my mom, yes, but for the most part, I was angry at myself. And underneath that, so, so ashamed of myself. By this point, I had developed a pretty significant hatred for my body and appearance. My prayer had transitioned from asking God to transform my situation to pleading with God to change my body. I felt trapped and like I would give anything to escape my physical body. I was disappointed in myself for not being more disciplined or controlled. I was devastated because I felt my mom was willing to throw our relationship away in the single-minded pursuit of me losing weight. I desperately wanted to be close to my mom but felt so uncomfortable and insecure around her. My parents are both Christians, but it was an encounter with God at a Young Life camp when I was 16 years old when my faith journey began. It was through these relationships and experiences I learned of, God, of the love of God for the first time. As I continued to grow in my faith and relationship with the Lord, this area of body image and insecurity remained a hidden struggle. I operated with the understanding that if God was even the least bit concerned in this area of my life, he was probably just disappointed in me too. So I worked feverishly to win his approval in other ways. If there was a varsity team and this whole Christianity thing, I was going to do everything in my power to make it. I said yes to every ministry opportunity and yes to anyone who had a need I thought I could meet. I worked hard to present as confident, secure, and selfless, but was serving from a place of woundedness, feverishly trying everything in an attempt to be found good enough. I've learned that disordered thoughts can often lead to disordered behavior. I wrestle with disordered eating and body image struggles throughout most of my 20s, but continued to assume this had nothing to do with my faith life. I went through periods of restrictive eating or over-exercising, grasping for a sense of control and hoping that maybe this time I could do better. These would surely be followed by periods of binge eating or other self-destructive behaviors, I would feel shame and disappointment in myself, and the cycle would start all over. I would have brief periods of relief that gave me a sense of hope that maybe things could be different, but primarily my thoughts were consumed by what I should or shouldn't eat, how I looked, and continued to wonder, what do people really think of me? I think I've tried everything and nothing has changed. How could this ever be different? I didn't even really consider God's interest or ability to transform these patterns of my life. I questioned so many of my perceptions and never quite felt I had solid footing in which to stand. 
I had been so unprepared for my mom's interventions when they began, so I almost made a pact with myself that I would never allow myself to be that vulnerable again. I would not open myself up to be appraised by another person just to again be found lacking. I felt ashamed of my struggle. Other people had real problems. Others were experiencing trauma, abuse, racism, devastating loss, hunger, displacement. My struggle seemed so self-absorbed and superficial. But a hope of a different appearance became an idol and almost competing savior in my life. A place I thought I could find safety and acceptance. Appearance was the currency in which I measured my worth or lack thereof. As I look back on those years, I realized there was something inside me that so strongly wanted to trust in God's power to transform. We live in a world so desperate for radical transformation. I would pray for God to meet others in their shame, sin, and disappointment, but I doubted that God could intervene in this secret shameful part of my life. I questioned his ability to intervene in the midst of the deep pain and suffering I saw in others around me. In some way, doubting God had the ability to transform was easier to stomach than trusting that he had the power and perhaps sometimes just chose not to do so. It was about three years ago through some conversations with an incredible woman from my very first small group at this church that the Lord began to give me courage to share more of my story. As I opened up, she responded with such grace and tenderness um, and also encouraged me to talk through some of this with the professional counselor. I began counseling shortly after, and through this process, the Lord has given me a hope that I no longer have to be held captive to the things that have had such a strong hold on me for so long. Over the last three years, the Lord has led me to deeper freedom, deeper peace, more true service, and a more tangible experience of his great love. It hasn't been easy. Um, other people often tell us who we are. We can get so stuck in that identity, identity, and it can be painful to look at it square in the eye and allow the Lord to begin uprooting those deeply ingrained lies. I've attempted to have conversations with my mom about the impact of the experiences throughout those years, and there have been some baby steps. The Lord has helped me develop a forgiveness and grace in our relationship that I could have never willed on my own. We are all broken people and each have unique histories that shape us. I learned through a podcast last year that during my years my mother was in college, her Christian university took each student's weight and body mass index, and students were placed on probation or even expelled from school from being overweight. I've also learned a bit more about the struggles in her childhood that may have contributed to her own self-perception. In many ways, transformation was exactly what my mom was after. She had an image for herself and me that she desperately wanted to be realized. I've heard a saying recently that what we don't heal, we can often transmit. And our culture tells us all the time that what we look like matters, and it matters a lot. While directed more strongly towards women, I suspect it may impact us all in significant ways. This verse from Romans has given me hope throughout the last few years. I love how Paul writes about the renewing of our minds. He urges the church, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It can be a fight to allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. But the scripture has time and time again responded to my question, God, can I really trust that you can transform? 
Can I really trust that you can transform me? It's a question in which I've continued to wrestle. There are days when I'm full of hope, and then others where doubt lays heavy on me. The Lord has been faithful and met me in my skepticism. Paul's words have also served as a reminder that the renewal of our minds is not an end in itself. Instead, a part of the process to be more fully able to know, with as much assurance as we can on this side of eternity, what the will of God is and to fully embrace it with every fiber of our being. Throughout the gospel, we see the transformational power of Jesus' touch. The man possessed by an impure spirit, Simon's mother-in-law, the man with leprosy, the bleeding woman. I've been particularly struck by the healing of both the blind man and the paralyzed man, as their communities were such integral parts of their healing. Their friends fully trusted in Jesus' ability to transform, literally cutting through roofs or begging him to touch their friend. I sense part of our faith journey is trusting that we serve a God who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can transform. He can transform our communities. He can renew our minds. He can transform the way we behave, the ways we think, the way we see ourselves and others. He can transform the ways we see him. The Lord has met me in this journey of transformation, but not necessarily in the ways that I had imagined. I prayed for God to change my situation, to change my mom, to change my body. But ultimately, God has begun transforming my mind and my heart. He has brought me to a place of seeing myself, my whole self, spirit, soul, and body more as he sees me. A daughter in whom he takes great delight and loves deeply. Scripture offers us hope for redemption and paints a picture of a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more crying, mourning, or pain. Yet we remain in this in-between where we see and acknowledge the ways that God is at work in the here and now and groan for the ways our world and ourselves have yet to be transformed. I'll close with these words from Henry Nouwen on hope. But hope is precisely to say, I don't know how God is going to fulfill his promises, but I know that he will. And therefore, I can live in the presence with the knowledge that he is with me. Hope is to open yourself up to let God do his work in you in ways that transcend your imagination. I'm trusting the transforming touch of Jesus to lead me into more healing and freedom. I hope we are a church who continually bring one another before Christ, imploring him to touch our brothers and sisters our communities, and our world. I pray we experience the transformational touch of Jesus in ways that transcend our imaginations. Um, it's, it's a gift that our friends have given us. Um, and the things that we... Uh, do when someone gives us a gift is we say thank you. So if we can just say thank you again to those uh, that have shared. There's a passage <coughs> that uh, serves as sort of an anchoring um, place for this series. And it comes out of Mark 9. It's one of the places where Jesus heals someone and um, they bring a, a, a boy who is sick uh, to Jesus, verse 20 of chapter 9. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell on the ground and rolled around. He's foaming out the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Uh, from childhood, he answered. 
It's often just thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. But help me overcome my unbelief. It's in that space where, where doubt and faith occupy the same field. And it's never the strength of our faith or the resilience of our faith or the longevity of it or the depth of it. It's the object. That object being Christ himself. And so even as we're all in this place of transition, of going from one spot to another, of doubt to faith, of uncertainty to certainty and back again, of remembering who we are and then forgetting or losing our way and then finding our way back, that in that transition, it's not about the strength or breadth or depth of your faith, but the object of it. Just like the man who had watched his son since he was born wrestle with demons. And he said, I believe, but I've had this boy's lifetime of wondering whether or not freedom could actually happen for him. So in whatever ways that these stories, you've found resonance in your own story, then with those that have presented, look to Jesus. Look to the object of their faith. Look with them. Borrow their faith if you need. As we um, continue to worship and as we close out, the thing that we do each week at Christ City, again, is to remember the object of our faith. We don't celebrate the strength or resilience of what we have, but we celebrate who Jesus is and his delight over us, his sacrifice for us, his beauty lived in front of us so that we might find our own lives in him. So as the band continues to play and worship, we just invite you to come forward to the communion table where we remember Christ's sacrifice for us on our behalf because of his great love for us. So let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we're grateful that we have a, a father in heaven, that we have a parent who looks down, who does not leave us on our own, who doesn't leave us um, to ourselves, who, who hasn't neglected us, but who cares and who loves and who pursues and who meets us exactly where we are. And so God, I pray that even as, as we've heard stories of the ways that you have been at work and the lives of some of our friends, as we've also heard stories of the ways that the enemy has been at work, God, we acknowledge both of those. And there are even other parts of the story where we're just not quite sure yet. But Lord, we continue to look to you. We, we gaze to you. Spirit, I pray that you would meet us even in this moment. In the, in the, in the vulnerability and in the courage and 
and the tenderness of the moment, God, that you would meet us, that you would remind us that we are your children and that you delight over us. We're part of your family. And that the wounds and bruises, that they're, that they're not too deep or dark, that you can't mend or heal. And so, Lord, we look to you. Even as we come again to dine at your table and remember you, Holy Spirit, do your work in us. In Christ's name, amen.